0: Okay, so last week, the author of Hebrews painted a really powerful gospel picture for us. And what he did was he showed us how the tabernacle and the furniture pointed to Jesus, but also how the sacrifices and the routines of worship also pointed to Jesus. The tabernacle, the blood, the sacrifices, the entire structure was set up in a way to be a shadow of better things coming and a greater temple in heaven on which the great high priest Jesus would officiate the great ceremony of spreading the blood of his own body on the mercy seat requiring no more sacrifices anymore in the history of the world that's what we covered last night in Hebrew, or last week in Hebrews 9 and 10 the first half of it into 22 he starts his closing arguments He has been making an argument, the author of Hebrews, since Hebrews chapter one, that Jesus is supreme over all things. And finally, by chapter 10, he starts landing the plane. He says many things over and over and over again. But Hebrews 10, the first half of it is him bringing his argument to a close and he begins to transition into his appeal. Why has he been making this argument for 10 chapters? We're gonna learn a little bit of that today. So that's where we are. If you have your Bibles, go to Hebrews 10. Let's turn to verse one and we'll read through verse four. Hebrews 1 says, for since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. All right, now that's not a new argument. He made that in 9. But he's making the same argument one more time because he's going to use, he's going to use logic to introduce another component to this argument. Same argument, but it reinforces a new idea. Verse 2 otherwise. Now what is the otherwise? It's connecting the previous argument. He's saying that since they had to offer it every single year, it could not cover the sins of the people permanently because it was ongoing. Verse 2, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. That's interesting. We'll come back to it. Go to verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Interesting. So we have the argument that the whole tabernacle structure is set up as a shadow, but we've just learned that there's something else that it does too. It reminds people of their sins. Verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, so the author is summarizing his argument from chapter nine, but he's making a new point. He says, which he's said in the last chapter, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin, and the whole thing was a shadow. But here's the next logical argument that he makes from this. If the bull and the goat sacrifices were enough, the priests would have stopped offering them. That's the argument. If the priest believed that what he was doing was enough to actually cover the sins of the people, then the priest would not have continued to offer the sacrifices the next year. Not because God stopped requiring them, but because the priest believed that the offering was sufficient. Do you understand the logic? He's saying, that when a sufficient atonement is offered, when a priest makes an offering, if he really believes it's sufficient and it clears the conscience of the people, then he doesn't ever come back and offer another sacrifice because he believes that that one that he just offered was sufficient. But the sheer fact that he comes back the next year to do it again reveals that the priest inherently understands that the offering isn't sufficient. Meaning that in the entire tabernacle structure, it wasn't just a shadow of what would come and what Christ would do. It was a reminder of the sins of the people. Because that priest every year offering the same sacrifice over and over and over again was admitting every year on the Day of Atonement that he believed that even though he was offering this, it wasn't really going to cover the people. The author of Hebrews is implying that the priests knew that what they were doing wasn't sufficient. And if it wasn't sufficient, what was the purpose? The purpose was, was to remind Israel every year of their sin. Now, this is interesting because this gets to the heart of the entire tabernacle structure. The tabernacle structure, the priests, the sacrifices, the Day of Atonement, the whole thing, it does two things according to the author of Hebrews. The first thing it does is it reminds you of your sin. And the second thing it does is it creates a desire inside of you to want something better. you see how it does that? The act of the priest in the Old Testament making this sacrifice, the idea that the whole reason why he's here doing this is because he knows this thing has got to cover sin. The bull, on the Day of Atonement, was covering the sin of the priest. So the priest says, okay, I've had a rough year. I was... I was not kind with my kids. I, I, I had sin in this area. I had improved thoughts over here. And so before I even offer sin for the people, I've got to offer sin for myself. And so I'm going to offer this, this bull. And the fact that I'm going to make this offering is rooted directly in the idea that I'm having to offer it because of sin. The whole point of the offering is to remind me that I'm a man of sin. But the fact that I'm going to be here next year doing the same thing creates inside of me as a priest a desire for something better so that's the beauty of the tabernacle system it was meant to remind Israel look I know you've been chosen among the nations but you still need to be covered your sin still needs to be atoned for and the system that has been created has been created in such a way to, to facilitate inside of you an, an understanding that the whole system in itself isn't really sufficient. And I should want for God to intervene at some point for, further with a better sufficiency system. This is what Jeremiah talked about when he talked about in chapter 31, the new covenant. The author of Hebrews was covering that earlier. But here's the thing about This system. If the first step is designed to remind you of your sins and the second step is designed to make you want a system that's actually better than this current system, but you never move past the first step, If all you ever do is look at this priestly system as a way to remind you of your sin and how terrible you are and how bad you are, and you never move to the next stage of wanting something better than what this system can offer, then your entire sacrificial system revolves around one thing. You. And that's the fundamental flaw that the Israelites fell into that created the entire Pharisees, the Sadducees. Because what happens is when the priests get into the routine of staring at their own sin and not wanting something more, they're only sin-focused and not God-focused. And not just sin-focused, you're selfish-focused because you're not just thinking about your sin, you're thinking about the sins that you committed. And so there's this cycle that God never enters into because you're not wanting something greater than the current system. So all you're doing is trying to find earthly ways to cover earthly sin, and it never leaves this cycle of sin. And it becomes works-focused, not grace-focused. It becomes what you can do and what you can bring to atone for the thing that you did wrong. And ultimately what it leads to is you becoming a slave to the system and not free, which is what God wanted you to do. Now here's the fascinating thing about this. This cycle of priestly sacrifices, the sacrificial system, this is part of our heritage. It's the reason why we have the book of Hebrews to connect the dots between the system and what Christ was doing. And what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's writing to the church and encouraging them, hey, stop trying to go back to this old system that's self-focused and not wanting something more because you're robbing yourself of the joy of what Jesus did on your behalf. And we look at this and we say, what a bunch of silly fools. The idea that you would go back to the temple and the tabernacle and the festivals and all the sacrifices in order to cover. We know here in 2023 how supreme Jesus is of these things. There's only one problem. We might not act like this church in going back to the actual sacrifices but we do find a way to reinstitute some kind of tabernacle structure of sacrifices in our life today. And I see this in the church constantly. Let me share what I mean. We don't really, really believe that we have been forgiven. We don't really, truly believe that what Jesus did was sufficient. How do I know this? Because we often try to make deals with God. You mess up in the week, you feel bad, how do you respond to that failure in prayer? Lord, I really messed up this week, so I'm gonna be better. I'm gonna read more. I'm not gonna miss church again. Instead of listening to that secular music, I'm gonna listen to more worship music. You don't pray those prayers out of an abundance of just genuine wreckage of the Holy Spirit. I want more of you, and so I just, I can't stop. I'm just, I do it because I'm hungry. You do it in the same way that the priests offered the old sacrifices. You are convinced that if you bring something that you know that he likes before him, he will somehow atone this thing that you did in the past, which proves that you don't really believe that Jesus Christ's blood was enough to atone for everything. So what happens is we say, Lord, I'll go to church. Let me, let me. I'll, I'll, I'll give, I'll, I'll, I'll give that thing up. I did that thing again, and so I'm just going to give it up. And, and, and then, and we treat that as some kind of sacrifice. But we know that those sacrifices inherently are not sufficient. Just like the old priestly sacrifices were not sufficient, and so what happens? Same thing that always happens. We keep going back into that pattern. And so you never really break out of it and and raise Christ as supreme and his sacrifice being the only one that ever needed to be done. The, The next time you mess up, you go back and you do the same thing. Well, let me ask you a question. Did it work the last time? The last time you like, beat yourself and flogged yourself and, and were just so self-deprecating, and the last time you got, well, this time I'm gonna get on my Bible reading program. Did it work last time? No, it didn't, and the reason why is because that sacrifice you brought, it wasn't sufficient the last time, and it's not gonna be sufficient this time. And the reason why is because there's only one offering that is sufficient for all time. There's only one that doesn't have to be repeated. But we go back and we repeat it, we repeat it, we repeat it, it being insufficient. We do it over and over and over again. And we end up just like the priests of the Old Testament, being constantly reminded of our sin. Your entire Christianity is self-focused and it's works-based and it's legalistic. And it's based off rules and regulations. And guess what? You're not free, you're a slave. When you read Hebrews 10 and you see the argument that he's making, your eyes start to open up about the way that we as Christians in the modern century run church. It isn't this community of believers who've been set free by this one atonement. It is a modern retelling of the Old Testament ways. The pastor isn't a shepherd among the people, one who is broken and also growing. No, the pastor is looked at as the new Moses. He's the only one who hears from God, and we don't do anything unless he says it. We treat our church bylaws like some kind of New Ten Commandments. We treat our own denominations kind of like the old tribes. We don't talk to anybody outside of our own tribe. Those people are weird. We can talk with them, but only about these specific things. And our entire worship structure is built around this idea of sacrifice not because it is an overflow of obedience Christ has given all and therefore I want to give it all no I don't really believe that what Christ did covers me and therefore I got to bring something into his presence maybe a loud shout maybe some nice clothes maybe this week I'm going to lift my hands just a little bit higher Do you see what I'm talking about? These are all modern retellings of the old way of doing things. And we don't see it because we think it's holy, but the author of Hebrews is inviting us to understand, look, it never worked in the past, and it's not gonna work here. You're not gonna buy any goodwill with God by offering your fake sacrifices. Why? Because sacrifices was never the thing he wanted in the first place. That's where we go into verse five. So verse five, it says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Now he's quoting Psalms. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now the author of Hebrews is quoting Jesus, and Jesus is quoting David. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sins, these are offered according to the law. And then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, it's kind of confusing to follow what he's doing here because he's going back and forth and quoting Jesus who's quoting David. So let me clarify 5 through 10. Essentially what the author is saying is that when Christ can't when Christ came, he declared something pretty bold. He said, God does not desire or take pleasure in sacrifices. All right, is he just saying that or is he pulling that from the text that tells us to offer sacrifices? Well, he's pulling that from the text that tells us to offer sacrifices. So Jesus is coming and making a bold statement. He's saying, guys, God never wanted the sacrifices. The sacrifices never did anything for you. They didn't cover you. They were meant to be a shadow and a reminder of your sin. That's all they were. But you treated them as a security blanket and uh, uh, like, a, like a child does a little stuffed animal. They can't go anywhere without it because you're convinced that this is the thing that makes you right. But Christ shows up and one of the first things he illustrates is that God does not desire or take pleasures in sacrifice. Now the author of Hebrews is saying, Christ came into the world and said, where is he saying this? Well, he, one of the places he said it is in Mark 12, 33. But when Jesus says that in Mark 12, 33, he's not just pulling that out of thin air, he's actually quoting David in Psalm 40, verses five through six, and that's what the author is quoting. The author says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sinner offerings you have taken no pleasure. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, David was saying in Psalm 40 that God gave him a body and God wanted that body, not sacrifices. And Jesus came along and said, David was right, but there's more to it than that. Because David was speaking prophetically. He was talking about himself in the sense that when David was writing Psalm 40, he said, God, I realize you know you don't want sacrifices. What you want is meat. You want my body. You want obedience. That's what you want. And Jesus is saying, David got it right. But, he was, but in the sense of him talking about his body, he was speaking prophetically about another body. Jesus doesn't just want a body, he wants one very specific body. What what does God want? God wants one very specific. Who is that body? Jesus. This is what the author of Hebrews is arguing for. Isn't that fascinating? The way that prophecy works, the way that God through the Spirit breathes into David to write these words that are true about David's life. But prophecy is never true once, it's true over and over and over again. And Jesus touches on that when he teaches in Mark on David. God never wanted your sacrifices. What what does he want? He wants a body. He does want a body in the sense that David said it. He wants your body, he wants your life, he wants you to be devoted to him completely, but it's not just your body. He's talking about a body, Christ's body. That's the body that is the sacrifice. So David wasn't wrong. It was just true in a more profound way. The body of Christ, and this is the, verse, the, the end of uh, 10. The body of Christ was given for us as a sacrifice for all we need. Now, before we move on, there's one really interesting thing that I'd like to share with you. Now, I say interesting because I'm a nerd. If you're a nerd, you'll find this interesting. If you're not a nerd, then the next like five minutes, I don't know, like, surf Facebook or something. I'm only kidding. I don't have to give you permission, you'll do it anyway. (laughs) There's something really fascinating here. Now I don't know if you're aware of this, some of you might be aware of this, some of you might not, but um, our English Bible, so I don't know what translation most of you are using, I'm using the ESV, Um, some of you might use uh, the NESV, the New Revised Standard, uh, uh, New Living Translation, King James. All of our modern Bible translations, our English Bible translations, come from the Greek Old Testament, excuse me, the Greek New Testament, and the Hebrew Old Testament. All right, so the Old Testament in your English Bible was translated from the Hebrew Old Testament. And your New Testament was translated from Greek. So Greek to English and Hebrew to English. That's how we got our Bible. But did you know that the Hebrew Old Testament is not the only translation that we have? There is a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was actually the copy that all of the first century church and almost all the New Testament writers used. Did you know that? The New Testament writers don't quote the Hebrew Old Testament. They quote the Greek Old Testament. Now, what is the Greek Old Testament? It is a book called the Septuagint. It is also referred to as LXX. Sometimes if you've been reading, you may have seen the abbreviation LXX. LXX in Roman numerals is 70. And the reason why that abbreviation is assigned to the Septuagint, is because how the Septuagint came about is about 150 years or so before Jesus showed up on the scene, there was this Greek king, or this Roman king, his name was King Ptolemy, and what he wanted was to get a copy of the Hebrew text, the first uh, five books of the Bible, into Greek. And so what he did was he took 70 scholars and tradition says that he locked each one of them in their own individual rooms and told them, translate your sacred text from Hebrew to Greek. And at the end of the project, they all gathered together and all 70 copies were exactly the same. That was called the Septuagint. Now it was later added to other books were converted into Greek. There were some books in the, the Septuagint, uh, the Greek Old Testament, which are not in our Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, Some books like the book of Enoch, uh, some of the books that are actually referenced in Kings. Um, uh, There are some books that were not in our uh, English Bibles that existed in the Septuagint. And um, if you want to know why, take Curtis's class. Uh, But the idea being that there was a Greek Old Testament and that was the translation that the early church and the New Testament writers used and referenced. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, for two reasons. One, that's the reason why many times in the New Testament, when you're reading a New Testament author, quoting an Old Testament text, and you look back at that Old Testament verse, you're like, that's not what it says. have you ever noticed that? Like, it says something different. Well, the reason why it says something different is because the New Testament writer isn't quoting the Hebrew Old Testament, he's quoting the Greek Old Testament. So what you have was the Hebrew text translated into Greek and the Greek New Testament writer is referencing the Greek Old Testament and then we translated it to English. Can you start to see the problem here? Every time you make a translation, it is difficult to capture some of the words from one language to another, but also some of the phrases and some of the idioms. There are things that exist in certain languages that don't exist in other languages. And so the translator has to make a decision, what is the best way that we're gonna take this and move it over to here? And this, as we come to Hebrews 5, is one of those examples. When you move from Greek to Greek, there's not really an issue. But if that Greek you're moving from came from Hebrew, when you quote it in Greek from Greek rather than Greek from Hebrew, you're going to see some changes. Let me show you one example. And you may have caught this already, but we're going to go to the slide. So, what the author of Hebrews is doing uh, in, in verses uh, 5 and 6 is he's quoting uh, Psalm 40, verse 6. And so, what you have here. so up here, the top one, this is what the author of Hebrews quoted. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. That's what it says in the Septuagint. But if you go to the Hebrew Bible, if you were to turn to Psalm 40 verse six right now, this is what we have in sacrifice and offering. You have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Now I put MT or Masoretic text because that is the Hebrew collection that our English Bibles are translated from. So if you look in your Bible, this is what you're going to see. But when the author of Hebrews was writing this, when he looked in his Greek Old Testament, this is what he saw. Now is there an issue here between body and ear? Not really. What you're seeing is the translator trying to capture the idea Everybody's using a part rather than the whole. Is your ear connected to your body? Yes, the whole point that God is saying is I don't want sacrifices, I want you. And your body is an expression of you and an ear is an expression of you. But in the Hebrew, the ear, the open ear communicates even more than the body. The body is what he's saying, But the ear is a Hebrew idiom that communicates even more. It's saying, I don't just want your body. I want your body that listens. Because in Hebrew, there's no difference between listening and obeying. And if I've got you listening, you are obeying. You see the difference? But it goes even deeper. In Hebrew, so our English Bible here has, but you have given me an open ear. So the English translators translated this, but this isn't actually what the Hebrew says. Have I blown your minds yet? (laughs) What the Hebrew says is a Hebrew idiom that makes no sense in English. So the English translators translated that idiom over, but you have given me an open ear. But let me show you what it actually says in Hebrew. Go to the next slide. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but ears you have dug for me. That's why the English translators changed it. What are you talking about? Is the English translation good? Yeah, it's a pretty good English translation. But in making that choice, we also lose a little something. Because what we have here is God telling or excuse me, David telling God because God put it in David's heart to say that sacrifices are not really what God wants. What does he want? He wants your body, but, but it's more than that. What does he want? He wants your open ear. Yes, but it's more than that. He wants those ears that he dug for you to listen to him. Do you see the difference? Do you see the rich power in the way that language uses? The imagery of a man digging a hole so he can get down to the stuff he wants and in the same way God is, is, is digging out those holes on the side of our head. Maybe because they've been stopped up with listening to nonsense all week or maybe because there was no holes there and he's got to drill those in so that the word of God can get deep on the inside of you. You had no way to hear before but he dug holes and now you can hear so you can obey. You see the power there? This is what the, Hebrew, uh, the, author, the author of Hebrews is trying to get, ac- get across. That Jesus quoted David, and what David was saying is that sacrifices have never been this thing that God wanted. All he's ever wanted is you, your body, your obedience. Now the author used this verse to make his case that God did want a body, a very specific body. That is true, but prophecy isn't only true one time. It is also true because he wants your body and he wants your ears. And if they're plugged up, he will dig them out so that you can hear his word clearly and then obey. All right, let's move on, we're gonna finish here. Let's go to verse 11, we'll go down to 22. And every priest stands daily at a service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time, those are being sanctified and the Holy Spirit who bears witness to us. For after saying this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He's quoting Jeremiah 31. And then he says, I will remember their sins and their lawless, lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's no point in you trying to go back and make another sacrifice when the, one that, the only one that ever needed to be made has already been made. And that one made it possible for the law to be written on your hearts and for your sins to be completed, completely wiped away. But then verse 19, therefore, Why is that word there? Because he's connecting the the conclusion of his argument with what you're supposed to do about it. He's now made his argument for 10 chapters. Christ is supreme over everything. Over Moses, over Joshua, over the priesthood, over all of the sacrifices, over every blood that was ever shed. He is supreme. So what do you do about it? Therefore, brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus and by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So what do we do with the reality that we have the greatest high priest who has ever lived and made the greatest sacrifice of all time? What do we do with that? We do two things. We have confidence, verse 19, and we draw near, verse 22. And he tells us that the Holy Spirit bears witness to us back in verse 15 that Jeremiah 31 is speaking to us And I would argue that the Holy Spirit is bearing witness to us today that verse 19 and verse 22 are for us today. What do you do with the reality that Christ is supreme? You have confidence, you have boldness, and you have courage in your faith. You stop acting defeated. You stop playing a victim. You stop acting like everything has been done to you and you are powerless when you have the God of the universe who gave his life to cover your sins. You've been adopted into his family and (laughs) eternity is where you're headed. Boldness, boldness to enter the holy places of God in prayer to stop acting like, I'm not really sure if he hears me or I don't know how to pray. No, boldness in the places of prayer. Seeking the Lord in every aspect of life, viewing his body as the curtain that you move from this outer place where you used to live into his presence where you spend all day long not locked in some closet like a monk, but treating everywhere you go and everything you do as a way that the Lord is moving through you. See, you're not going to work. You're not going to school. He owns that realm. You're going to school. You show up to work and he's teaching you and molding you and shaping you. It isn't work, it's school, it isn't work, it's a mission field. It isn't church, it's a celebration. Everything looks different in the view of Christ's work, but that's not the only thing you do. You don't just live with confidence and boldness and courage, you also draw near, get close and approach him. You treat this word with curiosity and reverence. You let this word dig out your ear holes so you can hear his voice clearly. You stop reading these words like you would read any other book where you start and you stop and the conversation is only one sided and you're only reading the words on the page and you start literally believing that what he is saying is God communicating to you. These are not just words on a page. This is the God of the universe speaking to you and digging out those ears so you can hear. That's what he says when he says, that's what he means when he says, draw near. Come with a childlike faith, but also a mature obedience. Here's the truth. Hebrews 10 is a culmination of the most powerful argumentation that we probably have in all of the Bible. It's arguing for the supremacy of Jesus over all things, and it does a really good job, but it ends with a call to do something about it. The invitation to see Jesus as supreme is an invitation to come to him with boldness and to draw near. That's the whole point of 10 chapters of viewing the supremacy of Jesus. Christ, you are over all. Why is that so important? Because it fuels my gut to run full speed into him and let everything else fall to the wayside. Nothing matters if he is most treasured. And here's the problem. We want to say, yeah, he is treasured. But not most treasured. And it's that one line of thinking that constantly pulls us back into the old sacrificial system to believe that we somehow can earn something in God's view when everything that needed to be done has already been accomplished. So the invitation today to be bold, with confidence, draw near, is not just some nice quotey little Christian thing it's not a bumper sticker or a tweet it is a it is a javelin to the soul wake up quit living with no power stop living like this is a hobby and you'll get to it when you can this The way it presents itself, it's all or nothing. There is nothing else in this world that you can accomplish, that you can earn, that you can buy, that you can treasure, that will surpass the beauty of this Jesus. He's it. And if that is not the framework for your Christianity, for your entire Christian walk, I'm happy to tell you today that things can change. I have met my fill of boring Christians. (laughs) What am I saying? I'm trying to be offensive in a way that challenges us to wake up. I have had enough meeting people who politely call themselves political Christians or social Christians, but stamp that name above themselves because they feel like it earns some kind of credibility in a social circle or a political circle. I've had enough, it makes me want to throw up. I'm interested in the men and women who want to get on their face and say, God, dig new ears for me because I've had enough of treasuring things that Babylon is selling, and all I want is you. And if you're with me, then all you have to do is surrender. Run boldly and draw near, just as the author of Hebrews invites us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.